From the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania and Sirius XM, this is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. The conversation you're about to hear was originally recorded on the Work and Life radio show on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by Wharton. Here's your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and author of the bestseller, Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman. Maggie Jackson is an award-winning author and former Boston Globe columnist known for her penetrating coverage of social issues, especially technology's impact on humanity. Her first book, What's Happening to Home, Balancing Work, Life, and Refuge in the Information Age, examined the loss of home as a refuge. In this episode, we discuss her most recent book, Distracted, The Erosion of Attention and the Coming Dark Age, which jump-started our global conversation on the steep costs of fragmenting our attention, an issue which has just become an enormously important one for all of us. Maggie Jackson believes this fragmentation is such a destructive force that there is a coming dark age, an age where the quality of communication drops dramatically and really has a substantially negative effect on our humanity. Fortunately, there are solutions to the issue of technology distraction, like setting boundaries and talking with family and coworkers. Solutions that Maggie and I talk about in depth in our conversation. So now, get set to listen and learn from Maggie Jackson's Big Ideas. Maggie, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's great really, to be here. It's great to have you. So you've been writing about uh, technology's impact on humanity in the New York Times and Business Week and National Public Radio. What drove you to focus on this topic of, of finding focus in a world of overload? Oh, that's a great question. Um, well, I had been a foreign correspondent for quite a while, so I lived abroad in Japan and London. And I came back to the United States, and I began writing about work-life balance when it was a very new field. Um, but then I kept seeing this major influence on our life because uh, when you are a reporter abroad, you're really dealing with sort of major social trends. So that honed my eye for these big, swelling topics. Um, and I became really interested in the issue of technology, how it was talked about, how it wasn't talked about. Way back when, in the 90s, you know, it really the, the technologists uh, dominated the conversation, you know, the people who could do the software, the people who were inventing the gizmos and gadgets. And I felt there was something wrong with that picture. And I've, I've learned since that actually historically this is the, the kind of trend that occurs uh, in, pa- in the past introduction of the telephone or the telegraph or the cinema. It's usually the inventors who dominate the discussion on how we use the devices, how we should use the devices, what's right and what's wrong. And then people who use them begin to grapple with them. And so it's been fascinating for me to see a maturation and an evolution in the way we both live with these technologies and also how we discuss them. Say a little bit more about what you meant, Maggie, by 
the technologists or the inventors, they have one view of their of their uh, of you know of what they've brought to, into the world. But then the people who actually use it, they have another experience. What have you seen with respect to the internet uh, on in terms of that trend? Sure. Well, um, it, it's such a big topic, but of course, the internet started out as a very small, you know, defense-related um, mechanism for people to to um, communicate with one another, and has grown into, of course, the behemoth that we see or feel, you know, are experiencing today, um, where we can do so much. It's just a sort of a free for free for all. It's a masquerade ball. It's a it's a wonderful world, and it's a horrifying world on the internet. And um, I think. The Internet, of course, is part of how technologies have um, become so uh, so much a part of our life that I would say we don't actually see them anymore. This is another thing. I mean, who looks at the electric light bulb every evening and says, whoa, look at that, or the car we take for granted? There's a sort of a perceptual fade when it comes to anything in humanity, um, actually. But, but really, with technology, we cease to see these things when the novelty wears off. And that actually, I may be jumping ahead of the gun on the distraction question, um, but that is actually a very important, I think, background issue to grapple with. Because once we stop seeing it, then we stop looking at it critically. And so this is a, a very major issue I think we're, we're grappling with right now. We might see the content coming at us. We might hear the beeping. But do we really take a step back and say, what are the pros and cons? How am I going to live with this? What, you know, what can I do with it? We have, in some ways, very, very simple kind of hatchet job ways of dealing with technology. And I think that we need to become more sophisticated in thinking about them. So this is, this is part of the historical process, um, but it's also something I feel that is really urgent for people to um, grapple with because there are such steep costs to misusing it and living, I think, as many of us do. When you say steep costs, I, uh, can you elaborate on what you mean by that? Like what, what do you see as the primary costs to humanity and to individuals to, uh, with the taking for granted the the new tools that that are you know so much a part of our lives now well there's so many and i like to talk about it as technological excesses because i don't blame the technology i don't think that we should get rid of it all. I don't think we absolutely have to go backwards or should go backwards. I use it. I love it. it I, you know, I, I have a lot to do with technology, and I love the way it works for me. Um, but what are some of the steep costs? What's I not think? to love? Yeah, <laughs> I know. Well, we're There's like so much mag- power. We're like magpies or crows or whatever they're with these, with these lovely, glistening, you know, beeping um, toys. Um, but, um, and and it, it has changed our world for the better. Um, but some of the costs, I think, are, you know, have to do with the way we utilize their attention. You know, the, the idea that in the average workplace, people switch tasks every three minutes throughout the day. Um, you know, that's, that's enormous. And those switch costs lead to slower work, less inefficient work. Uh, it slows us down. We do end up doing more trivial work. We're more stressed and we're more frustrated. So right there and then, that kind of fragmentation of attention that we're seeing all around us, 
um, is a is a tremendously you know steep cost to things like engaging with a question, wrestling with uh, wrestling a, a problem or an issue or a, or a messy, ill structured situation to the ground. You know, sticking with it. Um, you know, another example. In this country, there have been tremendous longitudinal studies of creativity, and across the board, creativity has fallen right from kindergarten to uh, adulthood. This is uh, work by a professor, Kim, in um, William and Mary, and she's done amazing work on this tub- subject. But the, the, to the, demonstrate the decline in creativity in schools, yes, and to, <clears throat> to in, in schools and in adulthood. I see. So you know, fluency, originality, expressiveness, imagination—these are slipping downwards, particularly in the last ten years. But these score that's gone down the lowest is something called elaboration. And that's the ability to put flesh on an idea, the ability to, as I was saying, wrestle it, the ability to stick with it. Can we just move on to another topic now, Maggie? I'm getting a little impatient. (laughs) Just kidding, everybody. The fragmentation wow. and the and the you know sort of stopping before you get to the hard point. Mm-hmm. Um, those are just two, and and that's not even you know raising the social costs. But we can those those you know those those two things actually reverberate both in our social and intellectual lives. The two things being the the lack of uh, ability to stay on a topic, and and what was the other? And fragmentation of attention. Mm-hmm. You know, two related but different aspects of the way we're living. Um, so I think that there are enormous, uh, enormous costs, and that doesn't mean I'm not hopeful and optimistic, too. Well, that's uh, I, this fragmentation of attention and the uh, lack of uh, or the declining capacities of, of people in our society to stay with uh, an idea or a problem is something that uh, you know many people have have uh, have identified and is is a serious problem. So let's talk about solutions, can we? Sure. Uh, what what are the you know the the most important things that we need to be thinking about to deal with these the, these problems of the modern age? You started to talk about you know how we need to become more mindful about the choices that we're making. Um, can you say more about what can people do to combat the uh, the erosion, the the coming of the dark age. Is that the subtitle? It is. <laughs> it is. What do we do to fight that and keep the light? Right. Um, well, I think I'll just say one other little bit about the idea of questioning, because I, I think when we are able to see and think about technology, where we're not so busy that we don't have, you know, that we just fall into bed and sleep with a smartphone and et cetera, et cetera. When we really take a look at what we're doing, as we're discussing tonight, and as I hope your listeners are, are doing, then we, you know, get to the road of control, of mastery, of understanding, and then charting the course. And I think uh, related to that is the issue of questioning a lot of different norms and value systems that go under the radar screen. Like, All right, so what, break that what down. Are we teaching, what are we teaching kids about what success looks like? Mm. Well, it's often a person who's so busy that they're only half listening to those around them. It's a person who's got their nose and now two or three different smartphones. Uh, it's a person who's really, um, you know, distracted from the people and the issues. So that's, you know, let's question that norm. Um, even the idea that we think... When you smart- say question that norm, Maggie, oh, yeah. what do you mean exactly? Like, how, how would you do that? Well, I think we can just 
talk about it, put these issues on the table. You know, this one of the sort of hot points, lightning rod moments in any corporation are the meetings. And I think there has been some discussion about meetings in recent years. What are the what is the etiquette? How do people feel if they're presenting and no one's looking at them? You know, what what how can we get on the same page if that is uh, you know, something we want to value? How do people really think about it? Because I don't think we actually talk turkey about these sorts of things. But it seems like a, a pretty uncomfortable thing to talk about. I, I was just at dinner um, and uh, at a restaurant, and the, and the people at the table next to me, it looked like a, a couple, a middle-aged couple with two teenage kids, and the dad was kind of staring out into space, and his wife and the two kids, uh, while they were waiting for the dessert, they were all you know, just looking directly at their cell phones, at their smartphones. And he was just kind of staring out into space, and I thought, gee, that's, that's an interesting tableau. Uh, <laughs> there seems to be something wrong with this picture. What is, what is he to do? What are people to do to intervene, to, to, to change, or to, to challenge the norms? How do you do that? Well, one of the best ways we can do that is to demarcate. You know, I think we mm-hmm. have a very um, uh, sort of a love-hate relationship with boundaries of any kind. Um, you know, the boundaries, to, I think, to us represent um, the industrial age. Uh, we think of home and work as now being integrated, you know, and that's true in many good ways. Um, but I think that we, you know, think that we've torn down the boundaries between the physical places where we are, between what we do, and anywhere, anytime, you know, seems like the holy grail. And yet a boundary is a kind of a limit, a kind of almost an embrace. You know, if you think of the curfew for the teenager or your job description at work or, you know, the industrial age invention of the weekend, these are boundaries. You know, boundaries are really terrific ways of focus. Your focus is actually a boundary. Mm -hmm. They call, um, and I'd love to talk a little bit about the different types of attention we have to utilize, but one type of attention is called focus. Uh, Scientifically, it's called orienting. And focus is a boundary making. They call it the the spotlight of your mind. You know, what's in, what's out. You're focused. That's, you know, that's what you're focusing on. So I think boundary making is a really important thing to kind of bring back. And that could be just as simple as saying from six to eight, it's family time. No gadgets. Take the cell phones. Um, I heard that in the White House, there used to be at least a basket in the Oval Office where people had to put their smartphones when there were, you know, top level meetings. So put that basket at the side of your dining room and, you know, when you're or in the restaurant. We won't all be 100% on it, but we also need rebels. We mm. need people, you know, I call them like rebels of slow, rebels of attention. Rebels of slow? Yeah, rebels of slow. People What's a rebel of slow? People who are willing to stand up and say, hey, slow is better. You know, I've been writing about a surgeon for my next book who has stood up to the surgical world and said, you know, hey, slow down when there's a moment of trouble instead of doing the cowboy thing in the operating room of just sort of pretending like all is well. It's actually, you know, she's rocked the surgical world by saying, hey, slow is okay. It's not hesitancy. It's not weakness. You can slow down just for a couple minutes, take stock of this problem, and actually maybe, you know, cure the patient. So rebels of flow are athletes of attention. I know a a scientist in Dallas who 
talks to kids about being athletes of attention, and those are wonderful vocabularies. You know, what does he mean by that, or she? What, what's the, what's the idea? That, you know, A, attention is something you exercise, and B, you know, this is a skill that you have to work toward. If you have attentional difficulties, mm-hmm. uh, like ADHD, you know, you have to be, you, you want to you be an athlete of attention. You want to be able to use your attention to, you know, jump higher, faster, et cetera, et cetera, but with attentional skills. So that's really just putting language to something we, again, let fly under the radar screen. And then tiny little things, boundaries can be putting your cell phone in the trunk while you're driving. I, I, I know there was a company who actually forced their kids, their, their employees to do that and then, but a lot of people love that idea when I say that because we don't have the control sometimes to put it aside when it's. So raining. sometimes people need to have someone else say it's time to time out. Yes, or use the physical or temporal boundaries that we've shunted aside these days. Tell us what is the coming dark age? What does it mean for us as a society? And then I want to get into more of the strategies that we can use individually and collectively to to try to uh, stave that off. What is the coming dark age? Sure. Well, I think that I began thinking about the idea of the dark age because I saw um, people far more brilliant or, you know, smarter than I, so to speak, um, at, uh, you know, thinking and talking about the dark age. You know, Jane Jacobs, the great urbanist, Umberto Eco, um, and, you know, they were talking about it, you know, our time as being a dark age. So I began investigating what some of the characteristics of a dark age are. Uh, and, you know, first of all, they're turning points, obviously. You know, there are times when often literacy is sliding, but they're, but they're very often through, te- through world history from, you know, China to Greece to the Middle Ages, we know well, um, times of great technological invention, which is very, very interesting. The parallels are um, amazing to our own culture, you know, where, where we really are in, in experiencing slipping literacy. And what really happened? Wait, let me get that straight, though. The, you say that the the coming of technological disruption or invention was a precursor to dark ages in the past. Is is that no, what you're during saying? During dark ages, there are time. They are times of technological invention. You know, the banking system in medieval in the medieval sort of so-called dark age. The banking system, the compass, uh, was was invented in in the in the ancient Greece um, dark age. There was a you know, more military inventions, uh, nautical, the, the cultivation of the olives. So you have the, these, you know, these, this time of sort of inventiveness, and yet what really characterizes a dark age is a forgetting, a forgetting of what came before, um, you know, a, forget, a loss of what had been. And I think that this posed to me the idea, um, really, or the question, I'm not sure if it's true or not, but I think it, it's enough to ask, ask about um, the signs that, you know, are we forgetting, you know, how to think deeply, you know, what a conversation is, what a long sustained, uh, you know, uh, you know, elaboration of our creative act is, those sort of things. I think I began to think that maybe we might be at the, at the peril of losing some of these cultural, uh, you know, strengths that are indeed passed down. They're not genetic. These are these are really cultural strengths that are passed down from generation to generation. And if not exercised, so to speak, they will fade. Maybe they'll rise again. But um, that, to me, is what a dark age is all about. I see. So it's um, it's a lack of attention to things that that matter. 
Yes, and the and the the, the, the uh, cultural forgetting uh, that these things do matter, that they are important. Um, you know, just for instance, if you do take our incredible appetite for technology, our enthusiasm, et cetera, et cetera, we often um, miss sight of the fact that some of what technology delivers, uh, you know, is uh, is not all that. Um, you know, great. And what what we did get without technology is something that we need to, um, co- you know, salvage to continue. You know, such as focused attention, et cetera. And I think that it's really important that we're not, you know, facing sort of one type of, you know, a society that you know seeks instant gratification. You know, shallow, easy answers that seeks the, you know, what we can do in three minutes and that's it, that seeks uh, just the briefest uh, type of communication is imbalanced. Uh, what we need is to, you know, balance ourselves with moments of stillness, with depth, with perseverance, et cetera, et cetera. It's not that we need one or the other at all the times. We need to re-kilter, you know, to get, to, to pull ourselves back from an imbalance that I see. So you talked about um, using technology with eyes wide open, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 to to really trying to um, uh, to to build into our lives moments of of calm and, and reverence. Uh, so what are some of the simple easy ways? <laughs> I realize that's kind of ironic uh, for people to to try to do more of that because I'm sure many people listening right now are feeling a sense of being overwhelmed uh, and distracted and not able to focus on one thing at a time. What are some of the things that they can start to do you know, immediately to, to help to create a greater sense of uh, focused attention to the things that matter? Sure. Um, well, I think that one thing we can do is just, for instance, and maybe they've heard this before, but you know, try not to check email first thing in the day, be- simply because um, we get swept up. Instead of checking it first thing in the day, try to spend even 15 minutes, as you say, or half an hour planning the day, thinking about the totality of the day. How you, what do you want to get done at the end of this day? So before diving right into the, to the digital stream, the deluge that's going to drown you, take some time for yourself just to think about your priorities? Right. Because one of the reasons why people feel so stressed and frustrated is because they're constantly reacting. Instead of, I mean, one of the most essential aspects of attention is um, something called executive attention. You know, that's the kind of symphony conductor of our mind, the ability to, you know, the meta ability to, uh, you know, focus and to pursue your goals in a long-term way. It has a lot to do with these executive abilities, and we're shortcutting them when we're always reacting acting to what's new in our environment. We're really sort of, you know, uh, undercutting the the highest order human thinking and and focus when we're reacting all day. And if we start off the day that way, I think we get swept into it really easily. you know, but, uh, you know, I often hear from people who say that uh, they try to do that. They start with their list of priorities and then they get, they dive into their email and then they forget the list because they're, they're reacting, as you say. Do right. Have, do you have any well, advice for those for that that dilemma? I don't know. Keep a post-it note uh, attached to their computer with those constant priorities, and the priorities will change, and that'll be good. Um, you know, I think that yeah, yeah. If you keep it right in front of you, that helps. Um, I think that uh, uh, another thing we can do that's actually been shown. So maybe to, maybe getting off email and just using paper. Yeah. 
as as a way to keep uh, focus on the things that you got to do. What do you think? Uh, are you are you are you taking yourself offline, Maggie, to to do more paper based work, or or have you found other ways of maintaining your your own focus and attention? Well, I keep emails, um, you know, segregated in my day. And so if I'm writing something, I mean, there are degrees of difficulty or degrees of focus that everyone needs for anything, Um, you know, whether it's teenagers doing homework or a mom, you know, having a difficult conversation with their, you know, teenager or their kid. Um, Everybody has degrees. So you have to um, kind of wield the different types of focus along a spectrum. Can I be interrupted or not? And so I... I do, yes, I deal a lot with paper. I deal a lot with um, when I need to uh, shut off everything. And then I find that the depth and level of my thinking is tremendous. I'm getting so much done in just one hour. It's, it's, it's enormous. When you, do, when you do what to give when you I, that hour of focus? When I shut off anything technological, except I'm using my computer as a typewriter, right. really, and I'm just using paper. Um, I mean, maybe basically I'm... I've, I could use, uh, you know, sort of files on my computer, but I also, um, I'm just shutting off the internet part of it, the part where it's, you know, it's coming at you all the time. That's what I, that's what I try to manage. And I think that I tell people often that this, this is an environmental question, and just as we can green the earth, we can actually, um, you know, take back focus and, and have an intentional renaissance, uh, you know, avert the dark age, so to speak. And I think that's that we can, if we think of it as an environmental issue, it's something like, uh, you know, noise pollution or, or um, you know, so with boundary making and with uh, little things like putting the smartphone in the trunk or I turned off the clock on my laptop. So I'm not faced with this industrial age, uh, you know, reminder of the passage of time. I'm really trying to focus my attention in ways um, so that my, you know, little tiny self-control doesn't have to do all the work. So you you take yourself off the clock, as it were. And, I turn and the clock off on my laptop. So you don't see what time it is. Right. It's actually wonderful. That's That sounds like slow rebel. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and and uh, one little tiny tip, uh, which is uh, out of, um, you know, Teresa Amabile's work in creativity at Harvard Business School. Yes. Very tiny, but... She found that pausing between projects or even topics promotes creativity. So it's really interesting because if you just allow, it's kind of like allow your your your, your you know brain to catch up with your body. Uh, you're you're allowing yourself to breathe cognitively. I'm switching from project A to project B. I just take a minute and do nothing and just sort of sit there. I'm not saying you have to meditate, but just kind of pause and then you are refreshed and more creative instead of and you're actually you what you're doing is something that you're doing while you're multitasking but in a larger better way when you're multitasking you're even when you're switching from subtraction to addition your brain has there's wait say that again even if you're switching from subtracting numbers to addition, you know, two different forms of math. Okay. And you're switching back and forth very quickly, which is multitasking. You, there are switch costs. Your brain has to kind of download the rules for subtraction and upload the rules for addition and switch over. And our brains just aren't fast enough. 
Yeah, so they need this kind of uh, switching time, and they need to, um, you know, I think of it as a, a swimmer, you know, kind of coming up for air and going back down again in a different project. So you're allowing That's your brain to That's a good metaphor. Kind of get we, you, we do have to breathe, after yes. all. Yes, exactly. We forget that, too. So that be the the idea there is to is to take a pause to allow your your body and mind to uh, to to sort of reset yes. uh, and and to get ready for the next the next phase and you can do that on this very micro scale that you were talking about like going from math to going from addition to subtraction or in a very major way at the end of say an hour or a half a day or even uh, a more extended time to pause the pause that refreshes I think as the advertisers used to say. So that you really do come back with uh, a greater sense of focus and attention, and and you're saying uh, creativity. So a renaissance of attention. What would that look like in our world? And who will be the Medici's of the modern Renaissance? Uh, yeah, the rebels of slow and the attentional athletes. I think. Um, yeah, I mean, we need role. We need to role model attention. I also, um, you know, really think that's very, very important. I was at a speaking at a women's leadership conference in Canada, and as I was leaving, a woman and one of the executives who was in the office, I mean, in the audience, uh, ran up to me and said, um, "You know, I, I, all I want is just five minutes." This is literally what she said to me: five minutes. That's all I want from my boss. But he just keeps his eyes on the screen, and she really couldn't get this boss's attention for even five minutes. She felt demeaned and, uh, you know, obviously as though he wasn't, his brain wasn't wrapping around her issues or their issues. Um, And I think that, you know, the idea of role modeling. What did you tell her? Hmm? What did you tell her? Well, I had to rush to the airport. (laughs) (laughs) No, I commiserated and, Uh, and, uh, you know. But what would you have told her if you had a half hour to talk to her? How would you help her? exactly what we've been talking about. Please just try to raise the issue. Mm. It's difficult sometimes. Not everyone's open to it, but maybe in a kind of a group way or a team way, um, you know, to think about, well, are we really giving each other our full attention? And so are we really doing the kind of, are we, are we doing the work we're capable of here? You know, perhaps by making a few small changes in our attentional capabilities and the way we distribute and pay attention to one another and to our work, Oh, we can, you know, we can, we can really be a more powerful organization. I'd love, love to see those kind of conversations going on, and I'd love to see people role model attention, as I think some people do. There are some tremendous. I think there are tremendous, you know, people who are attentional heroes who really. It, it, it's kind of like the old-fashioned making each person feel as if they, they count when they're with you or um, people who are incredibly focused in their work and able to, like Einstein, uh, work out things uh, in, in incredibly complicated ways uh, that, you know, to, that do demand time and focus. They're willing to put their energy into paying attention to something and get past the tough part of it. Um, because another issue I think that is related to this is we do have, you know, what many people now talk about is the quick and slow mind. And when we're under time pressure, we do revert. I mean, the, the quick mind, quick thinking, shortcut thinking is really the kind of thinking that actually is built uh, of, from our evolution to shut down deliberation in times of crisis. And so. To fight or when, flee. Mm, yeah, exactly. And, you know, and take the first answer and just take the shortcut and, and jump to conclusions. 
etc. And I think that to get past the discomfort we feel at thinking and deliberating is really, um, you know, in, it, it's difficult, but it takes practice. And we know that that frustration, that uncertainty, that moment's pause when you're not really quite sure of what to do will be, uh, you know, blessed with a better answer. Now, you've uh, you've been awarded a number of um, important accolades for your work in the media. What role does the media play in in you know really perpetuating our our social addiction to you know to the digital flow of 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 data that's that's streaming at us and and what role can the media play in helping us to slow down? It seems like the interests of most media uh, organizations are contrary to what you're saying. Right. Well, it's interesting. I mean, it's a bit of a chicken-egg question because I think the media, like the movies, reflect the cultural value systems. I mean, maybe they push it forward. Maybe we push it forward. I actually don't think that, um, you know, I think it, it, I think these sorts of, uh, you know, life, life uh, you know, values go hand in hand. I mean, the, where it comes from is very, very difficult to dissect. Um, there was a very interesting global study by the Associated Press uh, which tracked uh, young people around the world and how they used the news. It was a, a kind of an ethnographic study. Mm-hmm. And um, the headline or the main takeaway was they were, quote-unquote, snacking on the news. They snacking. were using Yahoo, no surprise here. But what was really interesting and I think incredibly heartening was that many of the people, young people who were studied, who were in their 20s, felt uneasy about this. They really wanted the backstory. They wanted to find out, what, what, well, how did it all happen in Ukraine? I, I don't understand. They really wanted to get past those Yahoo headlines, and they felt as though they weren't able to. So, um, again, you know, we have to pressure to get the long form and maybe, you know, um, I mean, look at the crawl. The crawl on on televisions, I'm no TV expert, but has pretty much um, in some, in, in, I mean, it's, it's still there, uh, but in its heyday, it was all over media. And now it's, it's, there's been a retreat from the crawl at the bottom of your screen simply because um, people don't remember. They actually don't remember when there's a crawl. They don't remember um, either what the crawl said or what the newscaster said. I am said. so glad we're done with that because yeah. <laughs> I could never follow it. And, it. and I never understood why it was there because it was just taking my attention away from what was on the screen. Yeah. No, exactly. And you weren't remembering it because your attention was splintered. So more long form. And yet that's hard to sell in an age when people want the short answer and they want the, they want they want to just snack. I mean, how do we well, h- how do we change be, that? And of course, you know, I, I, well, go ahead. Oh, yeah. I see a lot. I, st- I do see a pushback. I really do see a tremendous change in the last five years. Um, people, ur- you know, they, they, they urgently seek change. You know, a third of Americans actually say that they, that society places too much emphasis on technology. You know, 70% of middle and high school teachers say digital tools lead to shortcut thinking on the part of their students. So I think people are uneasy. They're questioning. They're talking about it. And the difficult part is to create a new kind of world, this attentional renaissance. You know, again, what does it look like? It's going to look like little changes. It's going to look like, you know, being in control of your attentional capability during the day. And, and 
Yeah, sorry. Well, I just we we need to wrap up here, Maggie. I know that people could find out more about the work that you're doing in in this really important arena at maggie-jackson.com and and read your great book, uh, Distracted, and uh, can't wait to see what you what you come up with next to help us understand these important trends in our society. Maggie Jackson, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks very much. Great discussion. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with the deep-thinking Maggie Jackson and that it stimulated some new ideas for you about how you interact with the technology in your life, your smartphone, your email, other technology. It's a an increasingly difficult challenge for all of us to find creative ways that work of creating boundaries that enable us to have human-to-human, real human-to-human contact that's not mediated by technology, and yet the need for that seems to be greater every day. So here is my challenge for you, an invitation. Why not have a conversation, just one, with a coworker, or maybe it's a family member, or perhaps a friend, about how technology has created distraction in your relationship and come up with an idea, one single idea that you both like that would help to reduce that distraction and enhance the quality of your connection, of your relationship with that person. Try that and tell me, what you discover, I would love to hear from you. You can reach me by Twitter. This is kind of ironic. Uh, at, at Stu Friedman. Or you can email me, friedmanoutwarton.upenn.edu. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 111, Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Tune in for live broadcasts of Work and Life on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. For more about today's guest and about previous guests, check out our blog at workandlifepodcast.com. Join the conversation by tweeting at Stu Friedman. And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, check out our website, totalleadership.org, and my book, Total Leadership, Be a Better Leader, Have a Richer Life. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share it with your friends, family, and coworkers. Until next time, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me.